Baseball. I'm Sean. And I'm Eds. And we're bringing you some baseball with a little bit of baseball history. We are, uh, what are we? We're a bi weekly baseball history podcast where the story receiver doesn't know what the storyteller is going to be telling them. Yeah, that's right. We exchange stories from baseball's past. Edsy's going to be bringing some heat today. Some heat. Some heat. I didn't say that. I don't know. I'm just assuming you're I'm sure it'll heat. be heat. Yeah, it's kind of heated. It's heated? I don't know, not really, but well, it might be. Depending. It's a metaphor. Just go with I'm it. I'm gonna. I'm going with it. All right, right. Yes. we're going with it. It's episode number fifty. 50. We set <laughs> arbitrary <laughs> milestones in our lives, that's right? <laughs> <laughs> and for some reason, fifty is a big number. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it is a big number. Fifty episodes is pretty tough to get through. I'm pretty proud that we got to fifty episodes. I'm so. very proud of you. I'm very proud of me. I'm proud of you too. Oh man, I, it's been wonderful. You're wearing a shirt that it, that we bought on one of our baseball road trips. Right, the old baseballism stuff. Here. Yeah, it's 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 fantastic. I was looking back uh, just now. Uh, so our first episodes were pretty much New Year. 2019 mm-hmm. but then we took about a year off and yeah, we, took we took a break a break there we took a break to kind of find ourselves a little bit and and uh, and deal with some stuff as well as as really uh find what we wanted to do with 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 ourselves and the podcast and i think we came back strong and we've been going strong for over a year now and yeah it's been is, fun man it's been this awesome is, this we've had awesome. some awesome people on our show and yeah like, by the way we didn't mention it in the last i want to thank matt marchese for yeah. being on the last uh he'll be back a couple episodes ago and uh, that was fun so yeah yeah he'll be back i'm open uh matt maddie's awesome and and a regular hopefully we'll we'll see him at some point and and yeah, he'll be back. Uh, check out Matt. Uh, it's probably football time by the time you're listening to this. Mm-hmm. Check out his fantasy writing uh, up on Sportsnet if it's there. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, awesome. Uh, this has been great. So we're bringing you episode 50. Yeah, uh, first uh, follow us on Twitter at Doing oh, yeah. Baseball and Instagram at Doing Baseball. And obviously, you found us on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts. But give us a rating or a review if you can. It. Uh, it It helps out a lot and we'd appreciate it and of course uh thank you for listening yeah uh so yeah i guess uh sean for the 50th episode of course you know like we say we set arbitrary milestones for life but this is one of those arbitrary milestones so wanted to kind of do something special Mm -hmm. and uh i didn't really anticipate this to be a two-part story when i started but uh there was a lot of parts of this story that i couldn't really feel like i could leave out and it's a story about um like it's a story of the crafting of another story that Uh, baseball fans still argue about to this day interesting and uh it's kind of the story of how once again as we've kind of shown through this podcast in the past that uh money and marketing sometimes shapes the narrative of the game's life and in this case, it's because the truth doesn't sell a lot of baseballs. The truth does not sell a lot of baseballs. No, not in this case. Okay, um, so, but before we get to that, I kind of first need to get a bit of background on how the game 
uh, in its early days was organized or for that matter, disorganized across America. Uh-huh. Uh, but first I want to introduce the star of this story. Okay. Friend of the show oh. or enemy of the show, Ooh. if you will, based on our episode of John Ward and the Brotherhood War. Uh-huh. Albert Goodwill Spaulding. Ah, Mr. Spaulding, yes. you've returned. He's returned. Look who it is. <laughs> Mr. Spaulding. Did he not have something to do with the Arthur Irwin episode, too? I'm sure he's had a lot. Basically, <laughs> anywhere from like the 1880s Just, to the 19, early 1900s, Yeah, Spaulding's had his uh, fingers in the pie of baseball. So, uh, born September 2nd, 1850 in Byron, Illinois, mm-hmm. which is uh, about 13 miles southwest of Rockford along the Rock River. He was born to James and Harriet Spaulding. Uh, Albert was born into a relatively rich family that owned plenty of land and a brood of show horses. Oh, you got the fancy horses. Yeah. So James Spaulding died when Albert was eight years old, sadly, of course, and the family moved to Rockford soon after. I'm glad to know he wasn't celebrating. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't celebrating his father's death in okay. any way. Okay, yeah, that's good to know. Yeah. Uh, so for some reason I wasn't able to uncover Albert had already been sent to live with his aunt in Rockford before his father's death. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's kind of unclear what the reason was, but uh, like I mentioned, his family moved shortly after the death of James. Uh, So since he was sent to Rockford alone as a child to live with his aunt, Albert made friends in his new home and kept the feelings of loneliness at bay by playing baseball. Later in his life, Spalding was noted by biographer Peter Levine to describe baseball in those days as a savior to him. Quote, or sorry, baseball to Albert Spaulding was, quote, the only bright skies for me in those dark days of utter loneliness. No, I like it. A little bit of a poet. Yeah. Yeah, well spoken. Uh, By the age of 15, he was playing for the local Pioneers team, which from what I was able to gather just seems to be like a local amateur club that he got his start with. Mm Mm-hmm. And it wasn't long, however, before he was pitching for Rockford's best amateur club, the Forest Cities. Weird names. Yeah. Weird names back then. But anyway, the Forest Cities is the club, the best club in Rockford. People are very in touch with the earth. Yeah. Forest Cities, Rockford, Rock River. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They're just kind of naming stuff after what they see. Yeah. Well, it's fitting. There's a lot of rocks around back then, I guess, and a lot more forests. So, as we know, these are the early days of baseball, and there's not much organization, and teams kind of exist all over the place. Every town seems to have a team or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, because there was not too much in the way of league organization, many team owners made their money by barnstorming around the country on these baseball tours. Yep. So, like I said, this is around 1865, when he's pitching for Forest City, but let's just rewind a bit to kind of... Wow, so we're way... We're way back Way back. We are way, way back there. Way back. Okay. So let's rewind a bit before that even. Yeah. To 1860. So famously in 1860, the Brooklyn Excelsiors set out on a barnstorming tour, which was termed to be a grand excursion. Yeah, I'm sure it was a grand (laughs) excursion. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. They would play six games, and they would win all of them, beginning with a 24-6 victory in Albany. The Troy Daily Whig wrote, quote, The Excelsiors had pretty well reduced baseball to a science, proving themselves to be good batters, capital pitchers, and their pitching was terrific. 
and an unknown Albany publication said of pitching phenom Jim Creighton, quote, he pitched balls swift as they could be sent from a cannon, and they were most difficult to strike. He's doing his underhand. Yeah, that's that, right. That's true. That's it would have been wild. underhand at this time. That's yeah. wild. So he's he's just and and as we me and Edzie know from our adventures and our travels, mm-hmm. most people from Albany fucking hate Albany. That's right, man. Fuck Albany. <laughs> fuck Albany. So as a hotel uh, yeah. a cleaning person said one day when it was as raining. it was about to rain. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was amazing. Uh, so. All right, so these guys are, are two word around being uh, the Excelsiors. Yeah, so they win the first game quite handily, as I said. The next day, Brooklyn was to face the Victory Baseball Club of Troy, who had some members of its club in attendance at the Albany match. The Victory Boys made a promise to the Whig that, quote, if they did not beat the Strangers this afternoon, they would give them the harder treatment than they had experienced at the hands of the champions. <laughs> They're saying we might not beat them, but we'll play them better than twenty-four to six. Let there me tell you. There you go. It's gonna be like sixteen to nine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the Excelsiors, however, scored nine runs on their way to a thirteen-seven win in the closest contest on the tour. There you go. They did it. Yeah. They did it. Thirteen-seven. Yeah. Yeah. You you sucked, but yeah. You- you didn't suck as bad as 24 to 6. I guess it should be they scored nine runs in one of the innings yeah. uh, to, to go to 13 to 7. Anyway, yeah. next up was Buffalo, the supposed inspiration for the tour, mm-hmm. as it was in close proximity to the beautiful Niagara Falls area. That is true. And it was also home, uh, home to two former Excelsior members, Joseph B. Bach and Richard Oliver, who were both pillars in the foundation of the Niagara Club. So I assume that's how they set the game up or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, July 4th, the Excelsiors enjoyed an off day touring the region and resumed play on the 5th with another expected victory over Ni- the Niagara's of Buffalo. Accounts in the Buffalo Express say that, however, the Excelsior victory was not surprising. The Niagara's were, quote, quite surprised and overwhelmed by the differences that separated the Excelsior style of play from their own. So, it's... I'm assuming that this kind of implies there was a couple different styles of how the rules were played at this time. I'm not yeah. going to go into, like, that much detail, but I assume yeah. that uh, the... The Excelsiors played the New York style, yeah. and then there was another style. See, dude, I can't escape the parallels in this and i'm sorry if 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 you don't understand the 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 comparison audience but it's like it's like punk and hardcore coming out of new york in the 80s like they're they're (laughs) going to different places just because somebody knows some guy in buffalo and all the buffalo bands are like yeah man like we're gonna we're gonna fucking play better than we're gonna play our we're, New York We're super style. stoked to see those guys, but like, trust me, like we're good. And then they're like, "Oh my god, these New York guys play like completely different New York shit style. than us." Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so it's all word of mouth DIY, tr- like touring. Mm-hmm. And I love just the discover like it's the same organic like grassroots as it spreads across like just something growing across the, nice. the country. That's a dope metaphor. It mm-hmm. is. That's all I can think about is is touring bands, especially considering you're like yeah they just two guys were from Buffalo, so they were like hey I know guys in Buffalo that we can play with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Quote the manner in which the Brooklyn chaps handled the ball 
the ease and uncertainty with which they caught it under all circumstances, the, the precision with which they threw it to the bases and the tremendous hits they gave it into the long field made the optics of the Buffalo players glisten with admiration and protrude with amazement. <laughs> glisten and protrude, you say? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Brooklyn had a 20-6 lead by the end of the fourth, added 24 more runs Jeez. in the fifth, and coasted to a 50-19 to victory before they moved on for two games in Rochester. So they're moving on here. And the first game against the Flower City Club was, quote, the most complete victory on record, according to the Porter's Spirit of the Times. The second was a harder contested victory, but a win nonetheless, as the Excelsiors took a 27-9 victory from the Live Oaks Baseball Club. So they're just mowing through the competition yeah. as they're going on 24, this tour. 24-13, 27-15. Yeah. Yeah. So finally, Brooklyn traveled to Newburgh for the final tour game. The first five tour games had been covered by local reporters, but for the sixth and final game, the New York Clippers sent a reporter, who was likely their baseball editor, Henry Chadwick, and who thought the Excelsior's play was not quite what it had been before the tour began. Yeah, they're hungover. Like, yeah, yeah. You ever seen a band at the end of a tour? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, well, it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> You're either going to be really tight or really sloppy. Yeah. Uh, the Excelsiors still managed to score 14 runs in the 4th, 10 in the 7th, and 13 runs in the ninth <laughs> to a 59-14 route of the Hudson River Club. Oh, my God. <laughs> and with that, the Excelsiors had successfully completed what might be considered the first extended baseball road trip. And because of the success they had in it, it inspired other clubs to follow in their footsteps because... I assume they made money. Well, yeah, I guess. Yeah. I'm assuming they're taking the train. You, they, you, they would have to. Yeah. What not, else would they take? Well, a horse and carriage. Well, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it would be a long-ass tour. Well, exactly. That's what I mean. There has to be a train, at least in that area, at some point. We can look up train history in a bit. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, inspired by the Brooklyn Excelsior Tour and subsequent successful tours, uh huh. they that went on the previous seven years, there was another team about to embark on a barnstorming tour in 1867, the Washington Nationals. Ooh. Bryce Harper on that team? <laughs> yes. It's great, great grandpa. Great, great, yeah, yeah. grandpa Harper. Okay, so it's like, it's not the Nationals we know today, obviously. And even Bryce Harper's not even on the Nationals no, no. of today. I don't even yeah. know why I said yeah, his name. That's true, yeah. <laughs> And uh, even at this time, like, this Nationals team were not, like, well-known. They weren't a famous team. And they were hoping that this barnstorming tour was kind of going to give them a national presence. Just like any DIY punk band. Yep, that's right. <laughs> and it did. Yeah. But John Thorne, who's MLB's top historian, if you don't know, will tell you yep. that one particular game on this tour was arguably the most important game in baseball history. Jesus and had it gone differently, the narrative of baseball's origins may have been either completely different or possibly lost in time altogether. Okay. Okay. That kind that it's, doesn't I'm so, trying to see how that makes sense. Yeah. 
Okay, we'll get to that. Okay. So Washington played only five games in 1865, welcoming clubs from Philadelphia and Brooklyn to play on the lot behind newly installed President Andrew Johnson's White House. Man, yeah, just come on over. We got a, the White, White House. Yeah. There's, a, there's some grass. The president, old Prezi, says we can just play in the backyard. We got some beer. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have a banquet after. Who's president? Johnson. Andrew Johnson. Johnson. Yeah. Yeah, okay, not Jackson. No. Uh, yeah, no, we're way past that. Johnson. Andrew Johnson. I don't know much about Johnson. No. So in 1866, the Nationals went 10-5, and five, and they by no means were of the same ilk as the Atlantics, Athletics, Mutuals, or the champion unions of Morrisania, who were led by young George Wright, the coming baseball hero of the age. Mm-hmm. In 1867, the Nationals were strengthened by additional recruits, giving each a cushy or even a phony government job. Okay, sounds like the government's involved with this team to <laughs> yeah. some capacity, yeah. and we need to do some research on this. <laughs> that's what this implies. Yes, yes. unless that's what this story is about. No. <laughs> President Johnson <laughs> no, no. and the USA slowly influencing baseball. No, that's not at all what Kicking it's about. Kicking my mic. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, like I say, so they're, like, they're bringing guys in and being like, all right, Cause, because, like, they're not, you're not allowed to be a professional baseball player, right? So, like, uh, so, yeah, like it's not a job. It's not a job. Like, the team, yeah. <laughs> what do you do for a living? I play baseball. So, the team's playing, the yeah. team's paying them, and then they're being like, no, no, we're not paying them. They have this government job. So, like, okay, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what this implies, anyway. They persuaded Wright to join them, too. Mm-hmm. Although the players were considered amateurs, there's little doubt that they were professionals being paid under the table by the ball clubs for example george wright's place of employment was listed as 238 pennsylvania avenue which at the time was nothing but an open field that's where he plays yeah <laughs> makes his bread it works yeah cuts the grass yeah <laughs> so in 1867 with their bolstered roster a desire to make their mark as one of the premier baseball clubs of the day and with an apparent chip on their shoulder to prove that quote the western farmers had been getting a bit chesty about their brand of baseball and it was thought back east that they needed a slap of reality at the hands of an experienced ball club i love I love the term chesty. Yeah. <laughs> you get an extreme bit chesty yeah, towards your me. Your chest is sticking out a little bit. You've shown a bit too much pride there. I also want to want to just point out the somewhat hypocrisy and irony of all of this fraud taking place on the same street that mm-hmm. the White House would later be on. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, it's in, it's, it's in the backyard. It's, so in the, it's in the backyard. Well, no, in Pennsylvania <laughs> Avenue, though. Oh, right, right. Yeah, you know, that's right. The, the, I'm pretty sure the White House is like 500 Pennsylvania Yeah, Avenue. something like that. <laughs> it's something like that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it just, just happened to be. <laughs> so they're practicing by the thing, and now they're out on tour. And the people are getting chesty. The Westerners are getting chesty. That's right. they got to go prove, their, prove that they're better here. So the Nationals started with easy victories over local clubs and then headed to Cincinnati for a July 15th match of unbeaten nines. Against I love the Red Stockings. I love that Cincinnati's the West. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is the Western teams. At this We're time. heading West. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Washington drubbed the Reds fifty-three to ten. Jesus. The Nats took on five more contests with subpar competition, and then headed for Chicago to play the best clubs, the Atlantics and the Excelsiors. 
not to be confused with either of the Brooklyn clubs who had the same names. There's no originality no. with names. We're just like, that team was good, so we're going to name it, and then we'll be good, too. <laughs> I wonder when the first... Well, we could probably look it up. I'm like, when the, when the first club just starts using animal names? I don't know when it was, like, animal names and stuff, but I do know that a lot of the early names were, like, fire names, like, fire company names, because it was a lot of fire companies were playing baseball when they weren't fighting fires. The Excelsiors and the, Atl- the Atlantic Fire Brigade and baseball It would be, like, club. teams called like the hook and ladder and stuff that's awesome this is a pretty sweet name that is a sweet name yeah uh so on monday july 29th nats trounced the chicago atlantic 78 to 17 what and that was two days after the washington nine decimated the excelsiors 49 to 4 at dexter park how are you having fun i know that's (laughs) what i'm kind of thinking like just smashing the competition but so that game sorry so that game uh against the Excelsiors was on the 27th of July, but it was the contest two days before that that Thorne makes the point of being the most important in the eventual birth and life of baseball's most enduring myth. Yeah, I forgot about this. Let's get back to it. What is it? Brings us back to Rockford. Okay. Albert Spaulding, in 1867, was not even 17 yet. He's pitching for the best team in Rockford, the Forest Cities was still an amateur club at the time. They had one professional season in the National Association in 1871. But that's not relevant to this story at all. I just thought I'd throw that in there as a little fun fact. 100%, yeah. So anyways, so Forest City is the Chicago Excelsior's arch nemesis. Mm. They had two earlier contests in 1867, which Rockford was defeated in close games by Chicago. Yeah. Uh, so... The Excelsiors won those two games. They're considered the state champions, the best team in the state. But due to these close contests, the Forest Cities were invited to play what was essentially a warm-up game against the Nationals on July 25th. So, you know, they get a little exhibition game before they go and play the two best teams in Chicago, right? Ah, okay. And Spalding was on the mound for the contest and recalled being a ball of nerves decades later. Quote, I experienced a severe case of stage fright when I found myself in the pitcher's box facing such renowned players as George Wright, Frank Norton, Harry Berthrong, George Fox, and the others of the visiting team. A great lump arose in my throat and my heart beat so like a trip hammer that I imagined it could be heard by everyone on the grounds. I knew also that every player on the Rockford Nine had an idea that their kid pitcher would surely become rattled and go to pieces as soon as the strong batters of the Nationals had opportunity to fall upon his delivery. He is very poetic, as you said yeah, before. Well he's spoken, like very well spoken. Well, I am fucked. Yeah, so he's, <laughs> like, he's saying, I'm nervous, and basically they know that if they get to me, like, I'm done. They just, like hammer over me they will they will hit the ball hard and i'm going to fall apart that's what they think is going to happen yeah so fun fact in the third inning al barker of rockford quote went to his base on ball which dropped from the bat which many indicate that this predates Fred Carroll's or even Tom Barlow's alleged invention of the bunt. Ooh, you know, yeah, just throw that in there. It wasn't popularized yet. Right, it wasn't <laughs> popular, popularized. Wasn't what yet. probably was obviously wasn't recorded except yeah. in like story. Yeah, um, lore. Yeah, right. 
In the sixth inning, George Wright, quote, took the bat and by a splendid stroke to center field made a home run. So the teams are having a supposedly high-scoring back-and-forth game and were holding their own against the powerhouse Nationals, Mm -hmm. which no team on this tour before or even after the game were able to do. Spalding recalled back on the game, quote, the Forest Cities had by this time gotten pretty well settled and their stage fright had disappeared. Yet none of us even then had the remotest idea that we were destined to win the game over such a famous antagonist. The thought or suggestion of such a thing that's at that stage would probably have thrown us into another mental spasm. At this psychological moment, Colonel Frank Jones, the president of the National Club, rushed up to George Wright, who was about to take his position at the bat, and said in a louder voice possibly than he intended, Do you know, George, that this is the seventh innings and we're six runs behind? You must discard your heavy bat and take a lighter one, for to lose this game would be to make our whole trip a failure. He's putting heavy, heavy burden on. And who is on, this man? This man's like the general manager of the team. Yeah, running down to the guy on He's deck. He's the president of the national league of the yeah of the nationals, Washington Nationals. You gotta use a lighter bat. Yeah, and you gotta <laughs> fucking. We gotta win this game, or this whole thing's a total and utter embarrassment, it's a failure. I also want to draw the picture for anybody thinking here that that know that the home plate umpire is sitting at a table, probably smoking a pipe. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Down the first baseline. That's true. And he was selected probably from the crowd. (laughs) Or both teams. Yeah, and both teams just agreed on him. Exactly. There you go. So let's just paint this full picture of presidents and general managers down on the field telling planners (laughs) to take lighter bats. (laughs) A lot of micromanaging going on. Yeah. Uh, So uh, Spalding continued, This incident inspired the Rockfords with confidence and determination, and for the first time we began to realize that victory was not only possible, but probable, and the playing of our whole team from that time forward was brilliant. So they're all stoked. They're, they're like, stoked. Yeah, we're gonna, we just got to get a few more outs here, and we're fucking, yeah. we beat the Nationals, boys. Yeah, this is yeah. before win projection became a statistical thing. That's you right. You could follow along with it. <laughs> That's right. So Spalding held the six-run lead and emerged victorious by a score of 29 to 23. Jesus. I thought you were going to How you would, like, stay in how? after allowing 23 runs. But that's just the game back then, man. Well, it was probably he was the only guy that pitched. It's just softball, right? Essentially, yeah. Essentially, it's that's just... true. Yeah, it kind of would be, I guess. I mean, you could. It's probably harder, but at the same well, point, and I'm not sure, like exactly, if this was the case at the time. But around, like in this time, while they were experimenting with rules, remember, like sometimes the batter, like at some point, the batter was allowed to be like, throw it here for me. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's you absolutely know? wild. All the all the rules. So, but no, just uh, that's so twenty nine to twenty three. They yeah. win. Yeah, over Forest City wins Forest, against the Nationals. Yeah, and like that, like we said before, they were like considered just the warm-up team for exhibitions, and then two days later, uh, Washington trounces the team that was supposedly better than them, and then two days after that, trounces the other team that was supposedly better, better than, than them, them even. Wow. So, you know, obviously now everybody is on Spalding's nuts. Yeah. You know. So you only allowed twenty three runs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And your team scored twenty nine. You must be good. Yeah, that has everything to do with you. Yeah, one hundred percent. Point is, you were winning when the game ended. <laughs> uh, 
so he like he pitched an amateur club to victory over the famously strong Nationals, who, by the way, folded after that season in what can I can only assume as complete and utter embarrassment. I'm sorry. Uh, was uh, what was the guy's name that he talked to? Who the guy on deck? Eddie. Oh, uh, right, George Wright. George Wright. Yeah. yeah. I just... <laughs> I told you it's an utter failure. Yeah, I told you we were done. <laughs> I don't care what happened after that. It's yeah. over. So now uh, Spalding gets picked up by who? The Chicago Excelsiors. Nice. But it didn't last long, and Albert returned to Rockford, where he continued to pitch while he worked various different jobs. And while on tour with Rockford in 1870, Spalding pitched to victory against the Cincinnati Reds, who were managed by Harry Wright. Mm-hmm. And when Wright left to manage the Red Stockings of Boston, he recruited Spalding to the ranks of his National Association Club, along with other Rockford dudes, Ross Barn and Fred Cohn. So, right from the get-go, Spalding was dominant pitching in the National Association. He'd lead the league in wins for every year of its five-year existence. In 1871, he was 19 and 10. The following year, he put up a record of 38 and 8, and he winning in which he won five more than second place Candy Cummings. You know Candy what, Cummings. Yeah, do you know what Candy Cummings is famous for besides inspiring the... Uh, Having the first stripper name I ever? I was going to say, <laughs> influencing the naming traditions of pornographers everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> he invented the curveball. Oh. Or at least was like the first one to like really use it all the time. Interesting. Yeah. He might have his own story, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Spalding won even more games in 1873, going 41 and 14, increasing the win totals again in 1874, where he was 52 and 16. That's, that sounds all right. Yeah. So, Spalding appeared in every one of the Red Stockings games that year. The team played in a total of 71 championship games, and Spalding started 69 of them. Jesus. 65 of them were complete games. Well, I mean, yeah. And then obviously, you know, he came out of the bullpen in the two other games. Of course. What else is he doing? (laughs) So his ERA for the season was 1.92. How? (laughs) I don't know. 23 runs was good at this point. Yeah, I don't know, man. (laughs) I haven't. He allowed 23 and then no other runs the rest of the time. No, I know, but that just, I wasn't (laughs) expecting that low. Yeah. And then his career ERA is calculated at 2.13. Spalding had a record of 204 and 53 in five years, topped by a 54 and five record in 1875 when he had 23 consecutive wins. Mm-hmm. He pitched 91% of Boston's wins in the association. Jesus. <laughs> I don't know if that like I don't know what that really I guess he like pitched the majority of the games, so I guess that means they were good, but yeah. like I mean it sounds like they're playing, you know, sixty-five, seventy games at this point, but mm-hmm. even still that is mm-hmm. that is wild to just I guess you know, he's just their pitcher. Mm-hmm. He's their pitcher. Yeah, he's the well, guy. Well he's the guy. He's the guy and he's doing it. Robert Tiemann described Spalding's play, quote, in the pitcher's box, Spalding was in complete control, using a fine fastball and change of pace. He was a master at keeping hitters off balance, either by quick pitching or by holding the ball while the batter fidgeted. In addition, he was a good batsman, adept at opposing or er, adept at opposite field hitting, 
and a savvy fielder who helped perfect the double or the dropped pop-up double play. Ooh. So this is obviously before the infield fly rule. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's the crafty that's, that bastard. Is crafty. So at some point in 1875, Spalding married Sarah Josephine Keith, who was known as Josie. And she was from a respected Boston area family. The marriage was in spite of the fact that Albert was still carrying on a secret relationship with a Rockford woman whom he had been previously engaged to named Elizabeth Lizzie Churchill. Okay, so pause. Yeah, um, okay. He's having an affair. Yes. With a woman he was engaged to. That's right. But he's no longer engaged to. Yeah, because I guess he... I'm assuming it's because he left Rockford. To so go to that, Boston. Yeah, so they broke off the engagement. So, yeah, I gotta go to Boston because this guy that I struck out in that big game uh, told me to, to be a star. Yeah. And I'm gonna meet this girl. But he still, whenever he goes home, it's kind of his his, his side thing, I guess. Yes, and though. she was married to an Indiana man named George Mayer. <laughs> George <laughs> Mayer. So they're both... You know, they're both fucking around. They're both they're both around. fucking around, yeah. but they used to be an item. So it's like, I mean, I I guess it's not forgivable, but yeah. it's it's understandable that they they sure. have this relationship sure. or this rapport sure. or whatever. Yeah, Albert and Josie had a son together named Keith. What? Albert and Josie is that the it's new his one? His actual wife. Oh, okay. Go. Oh, thank had a God. Son I together <laughs> named Keith. And Albert and Lizzie had a child Damn out of it. wedlock. First name Spalding Goodwill Spalding. <laughs> what? I know. Did he never get Spalding Spalding? Joey Joe Joe Shabadoo. <laughs> hey, Spaldy Spalding. <laughs> Spaldy Goodwill Spalding. Spaldy G Spalding. <laughs> hey, it's Spaldy G. <laughs> What's his last name? Spalding. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, why is the he really hates that kid then? Yeah. So he goes. He gets, so. Oh, I knew. I knew. Uh, somehow I knew a kid out of wedlock was coming here. Mm-hmm. As soon as you brought that up, I I just had a feel. And he names it Spalding. Spalding. Okay, continue. <laughs> <laughs> so despite that questionable morality, here's an ironic statement. Spalding disapproved of drinking and gambling. Yeah, why? That, that fucks up your affairs. <laughs> and because of this stance, Albert was sympathetic to William Hulbert's proposal to organize a new league with stricter discipline. Hulbert ah. was able to lure Spalding, as well as other stars, to his Chicago White Stockings. Hulbert promised Albert $2,000 and 25% of the Chicago White Stockings gate receipts. It's pretty good. That's a very good, good deal. deal. That is a very, very good deal. Well, we found out later on, like, or we found out in the the John Ward episode, they were just making up bullshit about the, the gate, gate receipts. receipts. So yeah. who really knows? There's if they like were six money people here. I don't know what yeah. happened. <laughs> a couple yeller dogs. There's more babies than dogs. Yeah, well, all these people are employees, actually. <laughs> uh, so Halbert formed the new National League. Spalding was given a promotion to captain manager. In the National League's inaugural season of 1876, Spalding once again led the league in wins with 47, and Chicago won the pennant. And in February 1876, he opened a sporting goods store. You don't say. Yes, in partnership with his brother Walter at 118 Randolph Street in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Their mother, Harriet Spalding, provided all the $800 capital used to start the store. Like he just got $2,000. <laughs> yeah. I need 800 bucks, Mom. 
<laughs> I had to give that to my second. I mean, third. My, I, I mean, <laughs> that's a lot of money back then. That's like, hey, Ma, I'm gonna open a store on Queen Street. Can I have eighty grand? Well, it paid off. So yeah, Spalding had also received, with the help of Hulbert, the contract to exclusively promote the quote official league book. That's a big contract, man. Mm-hmm. So he also produced a supplemental publication, Spalding's Official Baseball Guide. So it's like, you know, basically how to play and stuff. Yeah. Uh, within a few years, they had a four-story building in Chicago, a five-story store in New York, and outlets, uh, where is that? Outlets across the country from Oregon to Rhode Island. That is across the country, definitely. Yep. yep. Spalding was able to use his influence to supply balls, bats, uniforms, and other equipment to the league. He published semi-official guides and instruction manuals, carrying his practice over to other sports to promote his merchandise. His brother-in-law, William Thayer Brown, who was the son of a local banker in Rockford and married to Albert and Walter's sister Mary, provided the capital to enable the Spaldings to purchase their first bat factory in Hastings, Michigan. Oh my so god. So now they're producing it themselves. Yeah, so they're they're doing it. And definitely I immediately went to the animal bat when you said bat factory. I don't know why. <laughs> Considering this is a baseball podcast, but yeah, yeah. It makes absolutely They're, no they sense. They are making baseball bats. Got it. Yes. So by 1887, the Sporting News claimed that the Michigan plants were producing a million baseball bats a year, and other factories also produce equipment for other sports. Albert Spalding became baseball's first millionaire. Mm-hmm. So that's by 1887. But So he's still uh, playing baseball back in 1877, but Spalding abandoned the mound for first base that year. George Bradley was hired to replace him on the mound, but the team dropped from first to fifth, so that didn't work out at all. No. Spalding gave up the captaincy and played in only one game in 1878, and he was through as a ball player at the age of 27. Because, obviously, he's got a lot of other shit going on. He's got other stuff going on. He yeah. does, I mean, it would be a tough way to make a living back then with zero structure and... right. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, it's starting. I mean, they're starting. This is kind of starting. Yeah, well, to to be an organized league more, but he got a taste right in those five years with the National Association, but right. that folds. Right, and then, and then he's kind of left. You know, what what future would you see for yourself if at you know twenty five or twenty four, whatever you were making good money at, all of a sudden goes away, and then you don't know what to do. So. Yeah, he's got shit going on. Right. Well, and I think the other thing is, and we're going to kind of find out, is that, like, because of this time where, like, the reserve stuff is going on, Mm -hmm. it's much more lucrative to be in the office than it is to be on the field. Oh, 100%. So, after his retirement from the field as a player, Spalding became secretary of the White Stockings and then became president when Hulbert died in 1882. Spalding believed in strict separation between players and management. With the latter handling the financial matters, he built dominant, dominant teams in the early 1880s. The White Stockings won pennants in 1880, 1881, 1882, 1885, and 1886. So wait, he joins as the secretary and yeah. then rises to president yeah. quickly. Yeah. And just, all right, wow. Yeah. And so he's still, he's probably the same age as some of these players. 
Well, if in if he took over in 1882, that would mean he's 32 years yeah, old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I mean. He's not that much older than these guys. No. So he's young. He's the Kyle Dubas of his day, baseball-wise. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, Spalding was determined to have a clean game that drew respectable citizens to the ballpark. He was innovative, starting the practice of spring training when the team went to Holt Springs, Arkansas in 1886. And he sponsored a world tour of players in 1888 and 1889. Cap Anson chronicled the trip, saying Spalding organized a tour with exhibition games all around the world between the Chicago's and a team of hand-picked players from the rest of the league called the All-Americas. Among the players on the All-American All-Star team were John M. Ward, Ned Hanlon, Fred Carroll, and Egyptian Healy. Of course. Of course it has Egyptian Healy. Of course, yeah. On October 20th, 1888, they hopped on the Burlington Railroad and left Chicago. They toured the West, playing in such places as Minneapolis, Des Moines, Omaha, Denver, Salt Lake City, and San Francisco, and that would take about a month. On November 18th, the players sailed for Hawaii and arrived a week later. They played in Honolulu and then traveled further across the Pacific for a few games in Auckland, New Zealand. Whoa. Yeah, they're all over the place, man. And then a few Australian cities as well. And in January, they played a game in Ceylon. I don't even know where that is. <laughs> you didn't look that up. Well, how do you spell it? C-E-Y-L-O-N. C-E-Y-L-O-N. L-O-N. And from what I gather about this in the tour, they were also scheduled to play a game in India, but wow. they avoided the area due to health reasons. All right, there's like a cholera outbreak or yeah, something. something. I don't like know. That there's a Ceylon, Ontario, man. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's about 140 kilometers away. Well, maybe it was spelled incorrectly or something. Wait. Yeah. All right. Well, Did you spell it incorrectly? Problem. C e y l o n. C e y l o n. Yeah. No, I I did that. Okay. Well, anyway, let's get <laughs> off that. On February seventh, eighteen eighty nine, the players arrived for a game in Egypt, and from there they went to Naples, Rome, Florence, and Paris. Wow. On May 8th in the Paris game, Ned Williamson tore his kneecap, which pretty much ended his career. Jeez. <laughs> As it would, especially yeah. in 1889. No, like, oh, like, so he didn't dislocate his patella. He ripped his kneecap. It just kneecap? says tore his kneecap. Jesus. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to know what injury that was. They probably didn't know either. Yeah. Well, there's either a witch under your bed or yeah. <laughs> you got ghosts in your knees. <laughs> Here's some blow. <laughs> so after that, they crossed the channel and played in London and other British cities, as well as Glasgow, Belfast, and Dublin. And in all, there were 28 games abroad. It's a pretty fucking hefty tour, man. Yeah. So the All-Americans won 14 of the games. Chicago's won 11, and then they tied three of them. And they finally left from Queenstown on March 25th and arrived in New York on April 6th. Two days later, there was a game and banquet in Brooklyn at which U.S. Senator Chauncey Depew was the speaker and Mark Twain was also in attendance. So this is like a time, like we were saying before, where it was like, like it was basically a, like the cl term club is like not used lightly. Like it was a club that a you club. belonged to and they had banquets and that was like... It was more about like just going, let's go play some softball or whatever in the afternoon. We'll have like a big dinner banquet mm -hmm. afterwards, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, we got Mark Twain coming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the senator's coming. The senator. He's going he's gonna to host the thing. He's going to MC and whatever. 
It's going to be a good time. So after a few more exhibitions in Baltimore, Philly, Boston, Washington, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and Indianapolis, the tour arrived back in Chicago on April 19th for a banquet at the Palmer House. And the final game was played on April 20th, 420, at the West Side Park <laughs> after an arduous six months on the road. Yeah, that's a long tour. <laughs> long ass fucking that tour. That is a long tour. You covered some ground on that tour. Yeah, well, basically went all the way around the world. Yep. <laughs> uh, so by this time, Spalding had become the most influential owner in the National League. He, as we've heard on other episodes, was a proponent of the reserve clause and its system of, quote, in, indentured serfdom. Yep. So if you're unfamiliar, the Coles notes is that there were these rules that prevented players from seeking better pay in other places at the end of their contracts because the reserve rule essentially was the practice of saying to players, you know, here's what we think you're worth. Oh, what's that? You don't like it? Okay, well... Here's last year's pay for one more year. Sign it. You have no choice. We'll talk it a bit about it again next year. Bye. Yeah. Which it's, like, it's know. it's indentured servitude, and yeah, I found out that Ceylon might have been uh, Sri Lanka. Oh, okay. Back in the day. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yep. So uh, obviously the reserve cl- uh, clause kept salaries down, and because there was no. Uh, there was no negotiation. There was no competition yeah. for anybody, yeah. you know, services or anything like that. So uh, Spalding assumed authority over the players, rallying against drinking in the pages of the Spalding Guide. So he's writing it in the book. Baseball that, players don't drink alcohol. It causes their arms to get loose and them to impregnate multiple women. <laughs> Which I have never done. <laughs> Uh, he set up what many consider the second World Series, because it's unofficial at this time, against uh, St. Louis Browns. But Chicago only achieved a tie in 1885 and then lost four of six in 1886. So Albert Spaulding broke up the White Stockings, and the first to go were the drinkers. Goddamn drinkers. Ruined baseball. Yep. Mike King Kelly was sold to Boston for $10,000. That dude sounds like he drinks. <laughs> His name's King. His name's King he Kelly. He was the king for a reason. Uh, Mike King Kelly. You know that guy just had a mean gut and yeah. just has stood on more than one bar in his life. Sounds as Irish as they come. Yeah. Uh, so this sale to uh, Boston for ten grand was one of the catalysts for the formation of the Brotherhood War. Because... Uh. Uh, uh, Kelly, Monty Ward, and the like were pissed that Kelly, you know, was in their eyes sold up the river, and they didn't see a cent of ec- of the equity that was built up by the quality of his play. Well, exactly. He made a whole bunch of money off of him, and the player gets nothing. Yeah. So I mean, that's that's something. I love. I love. I do love getting back to the the fiftieth episode part. That we are definitely at the part where almost every story touches upon mm-hmm. another story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so at that point, Jim McCormick and George Gore were also axed. Must have been booze hounds, I assume. Yeah, I'm assuming goddamn drinkers. Yeah. The next year, star pitcher John Clarkson brought in another ten thousand dollars from Boston, and the Chicago dynasty was done. Mm-hmm. And Spalding had lots of money. That's right. He was rich and had lots of money. And by 1890, the players had formed a union, which was led by Montgomery Ward. Yep. And the Brotherhood rebelled and formed a rival league, as we know, the Players yep. League. 
And we know from the Brotherhood War episode that the Players League was in fact the healthier and more successful league, even in its early going, but Spalding led a strong effort to undermine the Players Association, culminating with a bluff that in the end sunk the Players League altogether and ultimately turned organized baseball into a monopolistic trust. 100%. Yes. God, listen to that episode and just understand how fucking ridiculous it was and how different baseball would have been mm-hmm. if the Spalding and the National League hadn't just lied. Right. <laughs> and, right. and we're just like touching upon this now. I don't even think we're going to get into like, like how he, you know, the legacy, how he's fucked with the legacy of this game. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> But in 1892, Spalding grew tired of baseball and turned over the presidency, uh, or turned over the presidency of the Chicago team to James Hart. Spalding lived rather quietly over the next few years, collecting a fortune from his sporting goods empire. Sadly, his wife Josie died in 1899, but it wasn't too long before Albert, in 1901, married his longtime love Lizzie Churchill Meyer, who was also now widowed. True love finds a way. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Natural deaths of. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So so they're both probably nearly sixty at this point. No, they're nineteen oh one. They'd yeah, be fifties. Fifties. Yeah. 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 So they're in their fifties, and yeah. they. Okay. So after marrying Elizabeth, Spalding finally acknowledged the paternity of their son, who was born out of wedlock. Wow. And allowed, changed wow. his name. Changed his name to Albert Goodwill Jr. <laughs> They're like, you don't gotta be Spaldy G. Spalding anymore, bro. You can be you can be Albert Goodwill Jr. You can have a respectable name now. He allowed him. This kid has to be like twenty at this point. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Spaldy, what do you want your name to be? <laughs> Can I be named after you, Dad? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> oh, wait, no, that's what he did. That's totally what he did. Yeah. That's what he did. I was like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. okay. <laughs> I thought we were talking about this other son, which was he also adopted uh, uh, Elizabeth's other son, Duran Churchill. Just obviously okay. from the other. Yeah, American way movie. cooler name. <laughs> yeah, Durand Churchill. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so in 1901, Albert briefly came out of retirement. Spalding, who according to Francis Richter, quote, put the game above selfish interests and was the greatest man the national game has produced. Which kind of is already a bunch of bullshit based on the lies and lack of integrity we saw through the Brotherhood War. Oh, 100%. <laughs> he, like, lies, he leads a group of owners that, that, that you know, uh, gaslights the Brotherhood into thinking that they're failing when they're really succeeding. Yeah. And then, I, I'm sorry, I can't get over going to a 20-year-old and be like, okay, I'm your dad. Yeah. And you get a new name now. <laughs> now you're named after me. <laughs> Don't drink. I can admit it publicly. Don't drink. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure. Yeah. Don't you else? Don't drink or gamble. Your name's Spalding yeah, again. If you don't, <laughs> you want to be back to Spalding? No, you don't. Okay. 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 So regardless, Spalding was compelled to come out of retirement to oppose the syndicate scheme of Andrew Friedman and John T. Brush. Okay. And basically, what that was was Brush, Friedman, and two other National League owners, Frank Robinson and Arthur Soden, met to formulate a plan in which they would run a league in which they collectively owned all the teams. 
and players and managers would be hired by the syndicate and and assigned to teams at their will. Using the term syndicate really works well there. Yeah. Because <laughs> normally we don't hear syndicate unless we are thinking of a crime syndicate, mm-hmm. which is essentially what they're trying they to do. They were committing a crime. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, probably. A moral crime? Morally, yes. <laughs> Being like, you know how we could make more money? Is if we owned all the teams. Well... We don't have the money to buy all the teams, but the players cost, like, nothing. <laughs> so we'll just grab all the players and own them all. That's right. That was their plan. But Spalding wasn't for that. That would not have... Well, I mean, I don't know why he cared at this point, because he's out of it. But I guess yeah. he, like, had a... You know, he was a guy who stood by his principles, I guess, and had to come and meddle with other people's shit to make sure... I don't know. Anyway, He's egomaniac. Spalding. Yeah. Uh, Spalding ran for the league's presidency against old friend and friend of the show, Uncle Nick... Young. Oh, Nick Young. Yeah. And eventually won. Mm. However, it was discovered to be a flawed process, and it was eventually challenged in the courts. When it became clear that Spalding was going to lose in the end, he resigned the National League presidency in April 1902. So he got the presidency and then had to resign. Yes. Like very briefly. They it was like it was like they were counting the votes and they were like, Oh, it looks like Spaldy won. And uh, then they were like someone was like, ah, that seems a little fishy, let's yeah, challenge and it out got of court. Yeah. That's wild. So I I assumed Uncle Nick was gonna win based on the timeline. But I was yeah, so that's what confused me at first. You right. threw me off there. Right. So but Uncle Nick eventually got back in there. So yeah. uh, this was the end for Spaulding in the offices of baseball. And then Spalding sold out completely and retired to Point Loma, California. So that's the end of his career. But why California, you ask? I don't know. I'm not going to tell you right now. Is that part two? That's going to be part two. How is there a part two to this? Well, there's a whole part. Remember I told you, like I kind of prefaced it in the beginning and I never got to it. This essentially just ended up being a story about Albert Spalding and his career. And like, But eventually we're going to get to... Like the real story, a myth, like the story of the myth that carries on to this day, and it all started because Albert Spaulding needed to make some fucking money selling baseball stuff, man. Okay, wow, wow, I am very much thinking about naming my kid Spaulding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry that that's kind of like anticlimactic for the first one, but it's sort of like a to be continued, you know? That was very climactic. I do enjoy, uh, I mean, honestly, you took us on a ride through the early barnstorming tour, like the original baseball tours, which, as I say, metaphorically speaking, look back at at, at any new genre of music and how the the initial bands Mm kind of spread the genre outwards from right. from a that was just such a cool story and then to have it focus really on Spalding and I knew I knew Albert Spalding was an interesting man but that was that was good all right mm-hmm. so take us to California in two weeks and uh, and I'll be happy I will all right so until next time yeah I'm Sean and I'm Eds and we were uh, doing baseball uh, I can't believe the the playoffs soon kind of. Playoffs are almost soon. In a couple weeks. Okay. Bye, Summer. Bye. Bye.